You have been such an example to us. Why? You have convinced us of our mistakes. Why? You're pure, you know the way, show us. Why? Your revolt is good and honest. You are the only individual. We need you. I see. You do. You see all. I will not be pushed, filed, stamped, indexed, briefed, debriefed, or numbered. My life is my own. They're frequently dumb, but they're sometimes astute. They're always emphatic on a degree absolute. They're breaking the prisoner right down to the root. That whole TV show on a degree absolute. If you like lava lamps and weather balloons, and whack ass inflections from Patrick McGoon, Chris and Glenn made a It's a degree absolute. absolute. Glenn. Chris. This session is called in a matter of democratic crisis. Mm-hmm. And we are here gathered to resolve the question of fall out. Fall out. We desire these proceedings to be conducted in a civilized manner. But remind ourselves that humanity is not humanized without force, and that errant children must sometimes be brought to book with a smack on the backside. And then you have to do the hand. Do the hand. Oof. Little thing at the end there where he kind of smacks. Right? Backside. To which I can only say, the bones is yours, daddy. They came from you, my daddy dead. Oh, boy. They certainly are. I mean, well, the the idea for this podcast was, as I as I say in every episode, yours. So so the the bones is yours, Daddy. They, oh, they came see, from, this is they came from you. Yeah, this is this the, that launched. I was going to say, it give launched, it to me, baby. Give it now, you hip hip <laughs> hip. I was going to say that exchange launched a thousand uh, slash fix, but you know, realistically, if I were to go on a search, I want to conservatively say five. There's at least five slash yeah. fix that kind of address the whole president six. 48. Yeah. Boy, he loves that number 48, doesn't he? Boy, oh, mm. man. This yeah, is... boy, he really does. Other than being a, a multiple of six, I can't oh, think hey. of, of anything that it might potentially have to do with anything. Would you like to know what my alternate opening for this episode was? Certainly right? would. What's in the box? <laughs> What's in the box? <laughs> What's in the box? The, the box in containing his passport and his key. Is that the box you're referring to here? I'm referring to the box, once again, containing Alexis Canner's name. Oh yeah, yeah. He gets he gets a big old giant font at the end. He's still like he in Living in Harmony. He was billed below the judge and Kathy, mm-hmm. whose names I can't recall offhand. Mm-hmm. But he was he was billed above them with his box, and now you know he's sharing space with Leo McKern and Kenny G, uh, Kenneth Griffith. That's my my man, Kenny G. Yes, yes, yes. This reunion of all Patty McGee's favorite actors, apparently. So Canner has to take a billing beneath. McKern and Griffiths, but he still gets his box. Yeah, yeah, he gets his box. And also, at the end, and we'll get to this, like, you know, we get we get a glamour shot, an extended glamour shot of Kenner, the hippie, uh, trying to hitchhike in both ways because youth is directionless. Then we get a shot of... <laughs> Stumbling s- across the M1, the M20, the M5. Whatever. Yeah, but with that frilly shirt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, he does pull off the frilly shirt. I yeah. Will. 
I will say. Yeah, not necessarily the bell. I'm not crazy about the bell, but that's that's <laughs> top hat. Where are you on the top hat? Uh, you know, if you're going to do it, you're going to do it. You have to kind of say hippie. And at that time, it was more mods were kind of transitioning into hippies, right? In, in right. Britain, so you couldn't have somebody with long hair and a beard because that was more an American phenomenon. It is February first, nineteen sixty-eight, as okay. this episode is premiering. This is a super close to production. Weirdly, there's a year between production of Arrival mm-hmm. and broadcast of Arrival. This episode is shot in December sixty-seven, and it's on the air February first. So wow. super fast, that super is fast. quick. That is quick. Some of the editing would argue for that, for, for that shortness of time. Well, there were, there were two editors, and and actually one of the this is an episode that does have a commentary track on the Blu-ray set. It's a uh, Noreen Ackland oh. who is one of the two editors, and the music editor Eric somebody. So these are not high level creative i mean they're you know they're in the weeds they're rank and file they're doing the actual work so they have some some real insight and some real befuddlement but what are we even talking about here, i was Warren? gonna say i gotta welcome the listeners in well right so i mean the thing is that in 1966 patrick McGowan started the long-running tv spy series danger man resigned at the height of the show's popularity to create a new series about a spy who resigns from government service and wakes up in a mysterious inescapable village where each resident is referred to only by their number surreal and provocative silly and pretentious ahead of its time and innately and unambiguously and lava lampedly of its time. That short-lived, long-tailed series was called The Prisoner. Yeah, it was. Welcome, everyone. Welcome identification. Welcome defectors. Welcome therapy. I See, I could say therapist, but I'm trying to keep it pure. I'm trying I to don't. stick to what is on the little placards. There is in front no of the, consistency. I ache the Greek for chorus. consistency. I know. I think it was, um, it was some Jennifer Lopez movie that you were talking about once. You asked if the movie was even copy edited. Uh, I, <laughs> I'm just going to stick to the original language. Welcome identification. Welcome defectors. Welcome therapy. Welcome reactionists. Welcome... It might be nationalism, but I change it to nationalists because I just can't help myself. Welcome all of you to the private, personal, by-hand, punch-card-driven podcast where we take this unclassifiable and unforgettable television series and... Oh, Chris, this is it. This is the ultimate. So much is riding upon this. 17 episodes. Number 17, the Spread Eagle. Go for it. We push it. Mm Mm-hmm. Like the amazing Spider-Man summoning every radioactive arachnid-enhanced ounce of his strength to free himself from a giant piece of machinery that has collapsed upon him while announcing to no one, anyone can win a fight when the odds are easy. It's when the going's tough, when there seems to be no chance. That's when it counts. In an iconic, indelible, much homage Steve Ditko panel from The Amazing Spider-Man number 33, appropriately titled, Glenn, The Final Chapter. Cover date, February 1966. Interesting. No, this is great. This is that's an iconic panel, as you mentioned. It has been homaged to death. That's a six. It's an automatic six out of six. Thank you. Thank you. I I agree. I think it's a six. We stamp it like a thwomp in the Mario series of Nintendo games, which have sold more than six hundred million units since nineteen eighty five. So this is all six uh, themed, and I appreciate that. So yep, another six out of six. Uh, cruising. Okay, well, I'm about to blow it because uh, you you have just identified the through line that I just in my desperation. Good. This is good. <laughs> have failed to. Uh, okay. Here we go. Well, I'm gonna just enjoy that sweet dozen for a second because uh, uh-huh. I'm probably gonna end up with like a 14 okay. after this one. We'll see. All right. All right. All right. We phi bell it like the eccentric inventor Maurice, lamenting that his otherwise responsible bookworm of a daughter has chosen to date a prince under a feral enchantment. Oh, if your mother could see you. Fie, Bell. Fie, Fie. Fie, Bell. Fie, are you doing this to me? Wow, that is crap. Wow, that is... <laughs> Jesus. Uh, that is that is not even, like... It's a dad joke that is even sweatier than a dad joke. So, 
I, you know, the magic number 14, I'm giving that a two. It's too, too much work, too uh, much work. Wow. You never let them see you sweat, which for you, I know is a thing. <laughs> it's uh, tough for you I to always, do. I, I can't not let them see me sweat. As a sweaty but, person. Uh, but no, I'm sorry, man. I gotta, I gotta, I, there has to be a line. Yeah. So 14, you Sheila allen me and I called it. I knew you were going to do it, but it, it still hurts. And where's the six in that? Where's the six? There's no six. Okay. No six in that one. Right. That's, uh, I didn't realize I was doing sixes until okay. you pointed it out. Okay. Glenn. Good, good, good. We brief it. Like an exasperated quartermaster with swollen hands, giving a careless alcoholic womanizer from the double O section temporary custody of a gimmicky weapon he shall no doubt lose or destroy. Okay. Well, I mean, that's, that is calling back to your nature, your essential nature, your essential self. That's going to put you back up at a six right there. Oh, you'd be surprised the amount of wear and tear that goes on out there in the field. Uh-huh. We debrief it. Yeah. Like Guy Pierce in the deflating penultimate scene of Curtis Hansen's otherwise pristine 1997 adaptation of James Elroy's novel, L.A. Confidential. All right. I think L.A. Confidential has come up before on this podcast. And fairly, if, fairly certain Q has also come fairly up. Fairly certain Q has. <laughs> uh, but it was a different Q, right? Different Q. Um, I couldn't <clears> swear. But you already, you're already on record it's giving already it a six, Glenn. No, no take backs. I'm going to split the difference here. Give that a three. Oh. Because I am confident Ooh. we have discussed not only that, but that scene and how uh, LA Confidential kind of biffed the dismount. So, yes. So, yep. three. Yep, yep. We number it like the Social Security Administration. See, the simplicity of that, um, it doesn't, it, 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 it kind of hobbles. It kind of comes off the parallel bars and kind of a little, there's a little hop at the end there. But mm-hmm. it's a five. That's a five out of six. Hey, Glenn, how many digits are in a social security number? Um, d- <laughs> five plus four. I, I bet your husband knows your social security number. I'm not sure you do. Nine, right? Nine? That's right. Okay. What happens when you when you flip a nine? What uh, happens right. when, you, when you're, you're yeah, at the helm of a I'm nine gonna, and you point. just... Turn the wheel. You turn the yoke as far as it can go. What, no, what we're, we're, we're subtracting a point for that because you didn't need to go. You didn't need it. it was you might have fine. to pull the parking brake on mm-hmm. that nine to get a clean 180 spin out. All right. So four and a six. Move on. Well, do you want to go for we... three, Chris? Do you want to go for three? <laughs> this is the part that we've been forgetting lately. Our inquiry into this unclassifiable and unforgettable series is oh, not yeah. of a degree elementary. Nuh-uh. It is not of a degree perfunctory. No. It is not of a degree cursory. No. What is it, Glenn? It's of a degree absolute. Have we not used any of those before? I don't think so. Okay, great. Great. Not sure. All right. Then you... Certainly, we, we have not used elementary or cursory. Perfunctory, and I don't know. I'm sort of drawn to P words, so yeah. that one's it's, it's possible. Well, nobody's perfunct. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> Five out of six. You can cut through anything because you're a regular IAL diamond over here. Okay. Uh, uh, yes. Sorry. What is it, Glenn? Uh, it's a degree absolute, Chris. Operate. <laughs> degree absolute operate. The final desperate adventure of the prisoner. When he gets a strange reward for being rebellious and an opportunity to meet number one in Fallout. Key to your house. Traveler's checks, passport. You are free to go. I feel Did you ever meet him? Did you ever meet number one? Meet him? 
Zeker hoe kwaad den, The prisoner learns what happens to all failures and creates havoc in Fallout. Don't miss the end of this exciting series. See the final episode of The Prisoner on this channel. So, yes, Fallout. Now, the title alone is redolent of mm. Cold War attitudes. Many things. Many, yes. many things in nuclear winter fears. But it also means to have an argument with. I fell out with someone. And right. that might actually work better on the episode prior to this, uh, once upon a time. But it's still, there's plenty of people arguing back and forth. Um, there's one famous exchange about um, various bones cracking. That is, it counts as an argument, so I give it that. And also, it is to leave one's place in a military formation, which may be six... Now, granted, Secret Service. Oh right, is right. a paramilitary fall in, fall out as place. an yes. order. I didn't, yeah. I didn't even think of that. Yep. 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 Another dimension. Another dimension. So, I mean, yeah. In terms of titles, I am on board with this. It works. Uh, the, the previously ons hit the main points. It does take time to include the notion that the kitchen area a even has a waste disposal unit. <laughs> Uh, again. <laughs> again, once again, can't get too much of the waste disposal We need thing. to remind viewers <laughs> and B, that, we did, that we did it is the, detachable, the detachable, detachable, steel, steel, <laughs> uh, which will become important later on. Go anywhere at it. This is a different opening than the one we've ever get. There's no London. There's no France. You see no one's underpants. There is only a helicopter shot, lingering, gorgeous helicopter shots uh-huh. that reveal that this was filmed grounds of the Hotel Port Marion, Penrindaidreif, North Wales. I knew you'd have it. I'm so proud of it's you. It's close. It's close. I, I knew it. I love that sort of game show and credit style. Mm-hmm. Promotional consideration provided by, by Decker and Decker Port, Port of Marion Beverly Resort. Hills. Yeah. <laughs> um, the difference here, I mean, if you imagine sitting, you're, it's February. It's 1968. It's cold. It's the, it's the British Isles. So everything's mm-hmm. rainy and gross. Mm-hmm. And there's no snow. It's just cold driving rain and you see these gorgeous sunlit helicopter shots of a bustling village and this music is swelling and you get the reveal location and you would be forgiven for watching this in 1968 chris and just rubbing your hands together thinking all right let's go now we're cooking with petrol this is it we're gonna get it oh you sweet summer child um (laughs) We do see, did you catch this? A regular old car in the parking lot? Not a Minimoke, just a regular old, like, I don't know. Like a, uh, they no, didn't have, I didn't. It's like an Edsel. I don't know what the hell it is. It's just a car. I didn't it's catch like, that. Like, well, it's there, and it's it's as a Minimoke is pulling out next to it. So it's like, oh, so somebody drove <laughs> to set and just didn't bother. Um, but you can't, I mean, you couldn't digitize that away, right? This is just, yeah. we're doing it live. Um, yeah. So the prisoner, the supervisor, and the butler descend further at the end of that hallway. Sounds like the setup to a joke. Yes, exactly. And they walk into a bar to a uh, therapy zone to a haunted coat check room, basically, with the hangers and moving mysteriously. Like, and there's a creepy six mannequin, which is probably hold over, probably done by the professor's wife. We yeah, would imagine yeah. because, you know, well, what else is we, she going to do? We thought you might be more comfortable as yourself. That is a very strange line reading. We agree. We thought you might be. More comfortable? We thought you would feel happier as yourself. Very odd. Yeah, but really, when when has the supervisor said anything without the emphasis in the wrong syllables? Yeah, it's true. It's like he's speaking English phonetically 
Yeah. Uh, possibly. <laughs> may not understand what he's saying. Now, this room has a really interesting effect because if you think about it, everything about the village is either quaint, colorful seaside Victorian resort or ultramodern. And this room is just boringly like 1968. I mean, it's like when you go to a very swanky, hyper mega designed restaurant and then the door opens and you can mm. see inside the kitchen and it's just like, oh, there's there's saran wrap and there's you know, jugs of mayo, whatever the hell. There, there, we've got some lo-fi hangers. We've got racks. There is a radiator <laughs> in this room and a bamboo basket for laundry. It just, it feels like, oh, we are really getting behind, behind the scenes. Now, the shot of Six going up to the mannequin to retrieve his clothes, he came to the village in because that's what's on this mannequin. Mm. Uh, they weren't burned, turns out. Yeah, right. I was going to say. The doctor in arrival told him that his clothes were destroyed. At the tissue of lies. It is of Six's hand reaching up to the mannequin's neck as if, in a very dramatic way, as if he's attempting to kill his doppelganger or kill mm. a version of himself. Put a check here. This, this will come back later. But actually, all it does is just unbuttons the top button of his polo we don't have a shot here of six you know changing out of his pants and shirt while the butler and the supervisor are just kind of standing there around awkwardly kind of looking around the room like not not gonna look at sixes nethers he walks down a hallway lined with jukeboxes as i will do often in this episode here chris i am going to ask you what you think this symbolizes because again this is the episode where humdrum run-of-the-mill plot details give way to overarching symbolism is the music that the rock music that is playing is that meant to be the opiate of the masses the thing that is uh that, that numbs the individual so this as scripted this was supposed to be um six or seven different songs playing simultaneously and tarantino style mcguin did um Name specific songs, but then in the script he did put the notation or whatever, <laughs> as, as though it was not terribly important. The salient point here is they were not all contemporary rock songs. No, because um, as you see in some of the jukeboxes, there's like an Al Jolson record and, yeah. and uh, some Broadway stuff in there as well, or West End, I suppose. Right. Okay. I'm sorry. I'm looking for the the stage direction. In the far distance, we see the butler, P and the supervisor, emerging through a steel door. They proceed along the corridor towards us. It is lined with jukeboxes, which blare forth each its own lament. That's a nice way of saying it. That's, that's, almost, that's, that's like the way that Elvis Costello writes in his uh-huh. memoirs and his liner notes. I, I, I like that. Um, all you need is love, little boxes, toot toot tootsie goodbye, hello dolly, yellow submarine, or whatever. There is a moment's predominance for each ditty, but eventually they all merge into a wailing cacophony. Now, on the commentary track, editor Noreen Ackland and music editor Eric Minival, I think, they, yeah, they explained they tried that. It was just too discordant, too difficult to understand. Imagine changing something in this episode because they decided it was too difficult <laughs> to understand. Glenn. So that was how they ended up just keeping it All You Need Is Love, which had been used as a... I had never heard this, but apparently the prior... Okay, so this is February 68. In June of 67, the first ever satellite television broadcast happened. There was some TV special called One World or something, and All You Need Is Love was broadcast globally via satellite for that event. And then it went to number one in the the British charts in in July. So that's probably significant. Mm -hmm. You know, the fact that that this song was, was played 
all around the world just a, a few months prior to this episode hitting the air. Right. But this always puzzled me from a contemporary perspective, watching it first in the uh, 80s and now. Um, because we both grew up in an age, Chris, where the Beatles library was prohibitively expensive. Uh, right. And then owned by Michael Jackson. But at this point, <laughs> the Beatles were still a going concern. And I'm going to defer to your straight heterosexual dad rock credentials here, but it's the equivalent of today getting the rights to what? Like a T-Swift song, to a du- some big pop hit, right? Some yeah. like, like Dua Lipa song, maybe? What would be the equivalent today? Maybe Beyonce is like the only contemporary star who has that kind of cultural power where everything yeah. she does invites instant attention and you know analysis and, and scrutiny. But I really don't... I really don't think there is any contemporary analog because music had not penetrated the consciousness of, um, God, I'm going to say it. I'm going to say young people here, Uh but in that way, with that kind of force, with that kind of way that alarmed the elder generation that they were being hailed as uh, soothsayers and prophets and social Uh commentators instead of just people who were good at writing melodies. Probably the closest thing in contemporary, I'm going to say Beyonce, but there really is no because you can only open that door once, right? right? And then right. It, then it's just open. For young musicians, I mean, I think the Beatles being hailed as a... And, and I mean, that's important because we're going to get this whole examination of, of youth and, and youthful rebellion just a few minutes after this in this episode. Uh-huh. And then we're going to hear the song again during its uh, atonally hyper-violent climax. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He pre-Quentined. <laughs> he pre-Quentined. Right. He, he, he walked, so Quentin Tarantino can... pull himself through gore yeah like the thing that struck me is is how like on the cw today even if a song isn't a big hit they're still going to get a sound a lot because they just they just don't have the money to pay for the actual rights they're still going to do it and the fact that this is still the song that's playing like they had to kind of redub when they released wkrp on cd or whatever dvd i suppose they had to uh or blu-ray I'll get it right at one point. Um, they had to kind of redub all these classic rock songs yeah. because they just couldn't get the rights. It's amazing right. to me that today we still we're still hearing the actual Beatles actually singing "All You Need Is Love." Yeah, no, I, I mean how that <clears throat> stayed on the the network Blu-rays that I watched these on that came out in in two thousand seven. I mean, I know in in that time in nineteen sixty seven sixty eight, like the infrastructure around authorship and and uh, royalties and all that was naive compared yeah. to, to where it is now, right? I mean, people uh, and, and very few songwriters had the rights to their own their own songs in a way that would become standard for, for big stars later. Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay. And it was just standard for if a song was a hit, a lot of different artists would cover it immediately. So sometimes you'd have competing versions of the same song in the, in the charts at the same time. And, and I mean, I think the Beatles were one of the acts that really caused that to change. Mm-hmm. Okay. All interesting. Still, it's still jarring. It still remains yeah. to this day. Just wow, they they did that, yeah. right? But it's also, I mean, the year. Okay, so this is uh, February '68. A few months later, in '68, the White Album comes out. I mm-hmm. mean, imagine the same scene with uh, Helter Skelter playing, or Number Nine, yeah. or uh, it, yes, or <laughs> Revolution Number Nine, or, or Piggies, or Why Don't We Do It in the Road? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, as you say, if they just done yeah. Revolution Number Nine, then all you have to do is flip it over, and there you got you number six, six. Number six. six. Number six. So how to describe this? So the the butler opens up what looks to us to be a kind of an old, like, dungeon prison door, a wooden door. And it actually on the inside has a big light-up sign that says, well, W-E-L-L, come, C-O-M-E, 
uh-huh. welcoming people to a room that they are exiting. Is, it doesn't. Is that? Are you familiar <clears throat> with that spelling of welcome? Well, space two, no. two L space and a, okay. No, I, yeah. I, I think I it's mean, doing it something. Me, it made me giggle because I'm I'm you know perennially twelve years old. Because you imagined uh, a, uh, a a comma between well and come. Yeah, but also I just I just hadn't seen that spelling before, and I wondered if that was a, a British ism, you know, like like putting putting a U after the O where we would not that sort of thing. It could be an old way of saying welcome. It could be where welcome kind of mm. kind of came together to uh, to be. Yeah. Could have, you are welcome. I don't know. Uh, so this cavern that they enter, it is full of stalactites. No no stalagmites. It's all tights, no mites. Diversity uh, and casting would become a priority later, Glenn. With village police marching in formation, it's got a cordoned off area where scientists or doctors are up to something, which we will see later. There is this wildly impractical rotating seesaw uh, that we, that a smaller version of, we normally get from, we see in control, the control room. But instead of monitors at each end, it has machine guns. Yep. This does not seem like an effective weapon for a whole host of reasons. Right. The interior of the set does clearly evoke the giant volcano lair that Ken Adam designed sure. for You Only Live Twice, which came out the summer prior to this episode. Oh, okay. summer, summer of 67. That was a set that cost a million dollars, which was you know astonishing at, at the time and mm-hmm. endlessly parodied and referenced and all that with uh, commandos and the same kind of PJs that these village police are wearing with their dumb little white booties. And, exactly. But yes, yeah. unless this, this subterranean bunker, courtroom, whatever the hell it is uh-huh. launch facility has a retractable door and can rise up like the volcano lair then those machine guns are only good for killing people in that room yeah <laughs> so. and people who are at a certain height in that room that's also good. <laughs> uh so there's an empty throne set up on a raised platform there's mm-hmm. also across from that a podium a dais i suppose which is surrounded by figures in white robes with masks like black and white cookies uh right they're <laughs> the Greek chorus masks, I, I suppose. Yes, I should have found out when that episode of Star Trek aired. Oh, sure, you know, yeah, yeah, the, yeah. Uh, yeah, the like yin and yang kind of face paint. Uh-huh. So collectively, either this group of people are called the Assembly, or maybe the ceremony itself is called the Assembly. It's a little unclear. The individuals are each assigned roles on little placards before them, as you mentioned. We have welfare pacifists right away we get a little inconsistency right there it's like are they welfare mm-hmm. blanks or are they anyway welfare pe- welfareians they're they're not therapists they're therapy pacifists there's activists uh and someone then joins the group he's not the supervisor so the supervisor is still standing in front of the dais but like uh they join the number as uh identifications and then there's also defectors which you <laughs> think would be yeah. like they wouldn't they, it, yeah. That should be an empty chair, shouldn't it? Because they're defectors. <laughs> Therapy, as you mentioned, reactionists, nationalists. There's also in this room a couple of giant steam pistons. Or maybe there's only one. And, and strapped to one is Alexis Canner in a top hat, in a ruffled shirt, in a tight-fitting black mm-hmm. suit, and white Chelsea boots. Yep. <clears throat> Coming right up out of the carbonite freezing chamber that Han Solo will be, will be sunk into uh, 12 years later, yep. 13 years later. We are welcomed by a figure <laughs> that is called the president in the script. This is good old Kenneth Griffith, my man Kenny G, who is the Napoleonic mad scientist slash number two. Just, just wailing on his right. saxophone. Right. Just, just playing that, that smooth, soothing. He is in full <laughs> uh, rumple of the Bailey drag, ironically enough. He's got a red robe. He's got the... I never know the difference between a cravat and an ascot, but let's just call it a dicky, I suppose. Uh-huh. Um, and he's got the, 
All right. Well, this this is your ballywick here, Glenn. He's so got you the are... powdered wig. Uh, they are here gathered to resolve the question of revolts. We desire that these proceedings be conducted in a civilized manner. But remind ourselves that humanity is not humanized without force. And that errant children must sometimes be brought to book with a smack on their backside. Now, what follows these interactions of the president speaking and then uh, the people clapping and then him calling to order with a gavel? This all seems to me more... uh, It has the look and feel of a session of parliament as opposed to a session of U.S. Congress, right? So... I think these rhythms, which feel to me, watching them especially as a teenager, so strange and hyper-stylized, I think to a British audience they wouldn't. I think it would be like it would be like be boring procedure, like Robert's Rules of Order to yeah. them. And, but it, there is something about this that elevates it, right? There's the not-so-spontaneous clapping, the punctuation mark of the gavel coming in, the really super-affected speech pattern. Um, and the shots we get of the president here are strange because it makes it seem like he's addressing this giant audience in front of him when there isn't really anybody there except uh, number one and six up on a throne. Yeah. Um, right. Where is it? Because the assembly yes, is I mean, there's some him, right, in most of these shots. So it's not as though he's When he's we see a shot him. from behind him, there's like four people in a little round table off, off to the side there. But that's yeah. it. And he mentions at one point... We draw your attention to the regrettable bullet. And we get a shot of the machine gun thing. And I thought, okay, so is bullet, yeah. is this like that thing where, you know, it's it's called the hand? Is this a thing where a part of the thing is meant to represent the whole thing? Is some weapon ever called a bullet? Because in my mind, and I looked this up. <sighs> yeah, I didn't understand that line either. I mean, when we say the sure. pen is mightier yeah. than the sword, we're not like, which pen? Like, yeah. which? hey, what sword are you talking about? It's, it's a... Uh, Why wouldn't you say medium. the inevitable wep- the regrettable weapon, the inevitable uh, or gun, even, but bullet? Yeah. It's like, and it's not just one. <laughs> There's going to be several that are flying yeah. through this cavern pretty soon. Right. Yeah, I was just thinking of the yeah. uh, magic bullet that was, uh, you know, like struck JFK sure, sure, sure. and also hit the governor of Texas, and uh, you know, had to change direction to cause um, all the wounds. So we get a shot of the yeah. seesaw machine gun thing, and then he says the, the assembly. assembly is now in security. Again, it's another phrasing I'm not used to. Why not just say the assembly is secure? Yep. I do think this is parliamentary yep. language. I think this is all supposed to be kind of seen as yeah. status quo boring. Does that mean this is now now top secret, confidential, state secret? Uh, state secret, confidential, why, why, why? Is that, is that what uh, I the think assembly is now in security? We are, we're all protected, you know? Like, okay. Watch watch your back, because we got a seesaw gun here. We're in the cone. Um... <laughs> The supervisor prevents six to the assembly. The president then tuts him, saying, nah, he's not a number anymore. He must no longer be referred to as number six or a number of any kind. He has gloriously vindicated the right of the individual to be individual. Has gloriously vindicated the right of the individual to be individual. Individual. It is. You're right. It's a, individual. It's not individual. There is no j. It is the individual to be individual. And this assembly rises to you. And you think there's a pause here and you think 
We're going to get it. 16 plus hours. We're going to get a name. This assembly rises to you. Sir. Sir. And you're like, oh, Jesus. Man, uh. so close. <laughs> so... <I'm... laughs> uh, don't mention it, Dad. Now you're happy. Um, the supervisor... Uh, imagine being a day player, right? Imagine being somebody who's just... You got this job as an extra, and you're, they give you a robe, and they tell you to clap on cue... Because isn't the appeal of being a day player to be able to say, look at me, I'm in the background of this restaurant scene. You know, I'm the guy behind Sam Rockwell. I'm, I'm peas and carroting with this, you know, crystal healer from Laguna <laughs> I met on that day. Like, this, yeah. is, this, is, this is the whole thing. Right. And just to be in that. We only see from one, uh, at this point, one shot at the corner of the frame, a silo with a great big, basically, how eye lens thing going on it. Yeah. And mm-hmm. what we recognize to be the kitchen trailer then descends from above, and there is a great deal of faffing around as the doctors retrieve the body and hook it up to all these machines. All kinds of miraculous technology is brought to bear to revive Leo McKern's Has, has the president given the order, resuscitate? Yes, he has. Uh, this technology includes, but is not limited to, Barbasol. We see, for no reason, we see... Uh, them applying shaving cream to uh, McKern's face. Well, there is I a know. reason. It's that, that McKern was in a play. So he has a, a, a wig. The idea that, well, we, we have to fill this in. We have to show him being shaved because now we suddenly care about continuity yeah, is a but... little... I mean, it, it would have been more in keeping with the tone of the whole thing if his hair just magically disappeared from shot to shot. Yep. All you have to do is, you know, at one point, there's this giant, basically, Dalek plunger that comes up to his face. You can just, that's it. Boom, yeah, done. it's like he's, he's getting a perm. Plunger did it. It's like that thing that my, my mom would sit under when she would get a, get a perm. Mm-hmm. Also, the exact same sound effect from Professor Seltzman's brain swap machine is, is given to number one now. Yes, yeah, so we get the spinning future light from, from the general, oh, right? It's right. like that's, yes. that's that same light. Um, Nothing is wasted. But first, we get our first shot of the silo. It's marked with a giant red number one. Below that is a lens that opens, and then there are some, I mean, alarms, klaxon-like sounds. How would you describe them? Uh, alarming. Boop, boop, boop. Lots of booping. Yep. Um, and the president, I notice, responds to these alarms as if he, A, can understand what, what is being said, and B, with not out of a sense of fear, maybe, but a just incredible sense of duty. Like, this is clearly... The uh, line of succession. This is clearly who's in charge. Is this yeah. giant silo? And what's the? There's something that happens where, where the president says, "Oh well, you know, though the, we, we he doesn't say this is a serious breach of etiquette. He says that no, but we have to preserve the." And then number one beeps at him, very much like R two D two reprimanding C three PO. And the president's like, "Oh well, okay, yes, of course. If that's the way you feel about it, then uh, then we right. shall proceed." And then later he says, "Oh, naturally, that would expedite matters. Let's do it." Yeah, that way. yeah. We come back from the outbreak with the president introducing the various forms of revolt. First up, number 48, Alexis Kanner's hippie kid. Number 48. Thanks for the trip, Dad. Be grateful for the opportunity of pleading your case before the assembly. <laughs> Baby, what a crazy scene! <laughs> Collarbone's connected to the neck bone, and the neck bone's connected to the head bone. Now hear that word. Number 48! I mean, this is the moment when it becomes clear that this kid is not, like, a spy 
who was kidnapped by the village and taken to the village because he had infiltrated some countercultural group and went native, right? Like that's one that if you wanted to have, sure. if you wanted to stick to some kind of logical explanation, right. no, this kid is just a symbolic representation of youth with a capital goddamn Y. Mm -hmm. And we're, we are no longer really talking. The, the village, the concept of the village doesn't come up much here. The concept of community, society, uh, you know, that is what is being talked about. The village as a, physical place representation is really not what's being done here because again if mcguin didn't didn't want to just just blow away that notion entirely he wouldn't have included the explicit shots suggesting that the village is just down the road from from london yes indeed indeed uh, on the a20 just 27 mm -hmm. miles outside of london i was gonna ask if those were miles or, or kilometers but oh uh, uh, they're probably, yeah, they're a, probably a miles, short distance uh, by any any measure the other thing is that Kanner keeps giving uh, the camera these very knowing looks. We're, we're macerating, we're reducing the fourth wall into rubble and rebar. We are no longer talking about the village, but about civilization, I think. Yeah. Pretty much everything out of Alexis Kanner's mouth in this episode feels like it's been through Google Translate, or at least through the brain of a middle-aged, culturally conservative dude who was trying to ape the language of youth. If you think of old Hulk comics... Rick Jones was always like, that's crazy, daddy-o. It feels very <laughs> like that. And I commend to you. And no, I, I love Stan Lee writing. Yeah, writing exactly. Kids. And I commend to you also the uh, Paul F. Tompkins routine, Freak Wharf, which is really about uh, these people who wrote Don't Ask Alice trying to come up with, well, get them with their own words. <laughs> um, so this youth starts intoning the words of an old spiritual, which is about a vision of the prophet Ezekiel, mm -hmm. uh, where he sees, I believe, I should have looked this up. I, mean, I did at one point, but I forgot. But it's basically, he has this vision of a place filled with dry bones that represent, I don't know, Israel. I don't know. What the, I don't know. It represents something. Um, and just... It is a handy anatomical chart. You know, if you yes, want to you want to remember which bone is connected to which bone, it's like learning your ABCs. You, it really you just, is. just uh, makes it indelible. That keeps that information readily accessible to you. Every first-year resident has <laughs> can bust this out. And just him saying these words is enough to cause the assembly members to freak out in a way that I got to say, Chris, feels under-directed, shall we say. Are they dancing? Or are, they, are we meant to think, oh, they're falling under the spell of youth? Or are they simply, you know, just the effrontery? How dare he? I'd argue we'd need to know concretely which for this to make any fucking sense mm. or to have, what is the word I'm looking for here? Meaning. Yeah. Later on, when he busts out into the same spiritual and mm. it's, we hear an actual pre-recorded version where he lip syncs for his life, basically. Yeah. Um, that version is when everybody starts dancing. That version is when mm. they start clapping and dancing and moving to the music. This one is just chaos. And I think we're meant to get that they are panicking, throwing the, you know, throwing the status quo into some kind of, I think then, but then later yeah. on, I, I, I think is, is what's going on there. But again, I don't know. And I would like to know something that simple. I think, you know, by 67, by the, the cultural dominance of the Beatles, I, I don't, I mean, I feel like the, the sort of panic about rock and roll, encouraging lawlessness and delinquency and sexuality. And like, I feel like that was a decade prior to this. I think by the, by the yeah. 60s, by the summer of love, that's all way in the past. Yeah, it's true. But there, there is still, 
an element of that you know that that uh with the the song maybe having the, the that effect on this body of people i mean even though it's a spiritual it's it's not rock and roll the whole thing with rock and roll right is it's it's uh you know african rhythm and european melody it's it's more rhythmic it's more it's more physical it's more sexual than mm-hmm. the the popular musical forms that preceded it and right. that i mean this is all Super racist, of course, but I mean that that was the belief among people in the fifties who thought that this was going to bring about societal ruin. The right. the, the Frederick Wordhams and uh those kinds of Sure. Gatekeepers. To, to me though, like the th- when when we get a touch up of counter singing and hear the word of the Lord, that to me was okay, so maybe this is Magoon bringing some of his faith into things. He will do it later more explicitly, but here maybe this is his introduction of that idea. But then I couldn't square that with his extremely Catholic faiths uh, because spirituals like dry bones, uh, and I, you know, there's two words for it. It's either called dry bones or dead bones. And I think the dead bones is the more problematic <laughs> title. So we're going to go with dry bones here. Um, they are clearly part of Protestant tradition and certainly not part of the British Catholic or even British Anglican right. tradition. Um, they are, they are something else. So anyway, 48 is released from the piston. He approaches the podium. The president speechifies that his form of revolt is directionless. Youth, with its enthusiasms, which rebels against any accepted norm because it must, and we sympathize. It may wear flowers in its hair, bells on its toes. But when the common good is threatened, when the function of society is endangered, such revolts must cease. They are non-productive and must be abolished. Dangerous because it is non-productive. And this comes back again and again. These two forms of revolt we're going to be digging into are non-productive, non-useful for society. So I guess you could say there's an internal logic to it, but... Oof. <laughs> I find it wearing. So anyway, 48 um, starts singing again. He runs around his Chelsea boots. Uh, his revolution is aimless. It's chaotic. It's anarchic. It's sending the society into a frenzy until number six recognizes him. Young man! Give it to me again. Don't knock yourself out. Give me the rest. Young man. I'm Bono Rosa. Young man. Young man. And that seems to be all he's looking for. All, all 48 is looking for it because it stops him dead. It gratifies him. Because I don't know something, something, something masculinity or... Is that the first time he speaks in this episode, number six? He has very little dialogue in this episode. He has very little dialogue. I think he might be... You can have your take a seat over there while we attend to certain matters uh, and blah, blah, blah. I think he might have said something. Okay. He is pretty laconic. Now, I don't know what to make of this. I know not to make too much of it because <laughs> it's just something that happened. Uh, but is that have, being called a man, is that number six addressing him as an adult who can make his own choices? Or because, at least in the States, the hippie movement was often conflated with um, the feminine especially by conservatives. Hmm. So maybe there's something about the maleness of it, uh, or if we're being generous, I would say maybe just recognizing him with the power to make adult choices. But clearly at that moment, moment, 
Six, the individual, capital I individual, and 48, the youth, capital I youth, recognize each other and come to some yeah. kind of understanding, right? Yeah. We've talked before, we talked on the Living in Harmony episode about how clearly McGowan saw something in Alexis Canner, felt some kinship with him that made him want to want to bring him back for this, this other very prominent role. Canner is not, uh, you know, he's a very conventionally beautiful dude in this time. But, you, I mean, you could have gotten, you could have cast someone who emphasized that more. I mean, for example, you know, you look at what Mick Jagger looked like during this period. or sure. The hair was longer. There was some eyeliner. and I mean, it doesn't go as, as hard into that conflation uh, or, or that interrogation of traditional gender roles as, as it might. So maybe it's something as simple as the establishment represented by the president is saying your revolt means nothing because of who you are. And the individual is recognizing you and saying there's something about what you're doing that mm-hmm. I see and I appreciate. Maybe it's just that simple. What do you think? That's it. And that's that's also but that that's its own kind of critique of uh rebellion. And and particularly if your youthful rebellion calms down just because I see you and say, Okay, I acknowledge you, I acknowledge that you're a, a sentient person who has a, yeah. a right to your own belief, then it's like I'm buying you off, right? Yeah. That really deflates your... whatever you're railing against, if I can just say that like every subsequent generation you are only agitating for acknowledgement for recognition and that's not societal change that's it's emotional that's personal that's true but it does seem like what is being explored here is the notion of not dismissing someone because the establishment dismisses anything that might possibly threaten it and and um you know and undercuts it yeah. And the fact that this isn't being done here. I, I don't know. I don't know. I do think this episode has come up in my estimation looking at it again. And having had the advantage of, of seeing it, even for the first time, so many years afterwards, where I didn't have the kind of uh, confining expectation expectations. For, yeah. yeah. But for a guy who has so many digs at uh, abstract art earlier yeah. in, in the series, like really cheap jokes, mm-hmm. to then give us this... And I do think this is this is an interesting abstraction. I, I don't think it's fully successful. I think the imagery is great. Uh, it's certainly not predictable. From a guy who who uh, dismissing abstract art as like oh perfect likeness, that's just mm-hmm. uh, it's it's just not where what you would have expected from him. Uh, you wouldn't uh, expect this favorable uh, depiction of youth revolt. Right. Um, from him, who is a very culturally conservative yeah. dude. Of course, Mark Steen was, was long gone by this time, but Mark Steen called this episode an absurd pantomime. Now, that that's just a like a factual description, right? That's not a value yeah. judgment. Although then, right. then he follows that up with gross self-indulgence by someone who was fed up with it and who wanted to go out in a blaze of something or other. Yeah, well, it's a blaze of something or other. That's certainly true. He had equally unkind words for Once Upon a Time, which, of course, was made when he was still... On the job, right. he he called that episode gibberish. So uh, Markstein isn't always right. No, that's true. That's true. So at this point, the number one silo says basically bleep bloop bloop, which we which we translate into <laughs> get on with it. Yes, of course. Naturally, it would expedite matters. And so the president tries to adjust to the new form of address, and what follows 
I do love it. It's great. It is cringe. It is, as the kids say, a chuggy, but I love every moment of it. You've never been with it. I mean with us. I'm gone. Gone away. But you were here, then you went and gone. Got the word. Oh, yes, yes. The right light, Dad. Got the sign. Sign? The light. Light? The message. Then you went and gone. Why? Give it to me, baby. That's it. Give me the rest. Give all you want. Give. That's it. That's it. And take. That's it. Takes all you want. That's it. Take. That's it. Take. 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 I'll try to translate what I gather this exchange means. The president wants to know why 48 is revolting. 48 says, all you want from me is for me to give up my freedoms. And if I don't, you take them from me. And this causes the assembly to get very excited about the business of taking. And they start chanting the word take, 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 which, of course, causes 48 to collapse into Jesus pose. And I was like, there it is. I don't, I don't know if the, uh, the hear the word of the Lord stuff was, was, yeah. <laughs> wasn't was going, but yep, there it is. And as this is happening, we meet more assembly members, youngsters, recreation, education, rehabilitation. So yeah, are I'm they sorry I didn't welcome them earlier, but uh, yeah, I want to so this... welcome education and rehabilitation as well. Give it to me, baby. Confess. Oh, dad, I'm your baby dad. Yo, your baby something, daddy. Confess. The bones is yours, Dad. They came from you, my daddy. Confess. Now you hip. Hip, Dad. Hip. Confess. And a hip bone. Confess. And a thigh bone. Confess. Shin bone. There is. There are many choices. Made. Many, many choices. Um, so Canner is making big choices too. He says, "You owe your baby something, Daddy." And uh, that is. Uh, it's. <laughs> Do you think he did that in his Hamlet? He was (laughs) in Peter Brook's Hamlet, the Peter Brook directed Hamlet at uh, Royal Shakespeare Company two years prior to this. I wonder. To sleep, perchance to dream, daddy. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, uh, The bones is yours, dad. They came from you. Now this, Chris, I'm just going to keep throwing out possible interpretations here. I don't know what it means, but is this the youth crediting society with his existence? Yes. I came from you, and I'm rendering unto uh-huh. Caesar what is Caesar's, maybe. And this this follows one of my favorite exchanges, uh, you know, now you're hip. And then he gets a great look on his face, uh, Alexis does, where he says, hip, dead, hip. And this leads into, if you're counting, the third rendition of Dry Bones with more assembly members, including old folk, right, and entertainment. Now, those right. two things, they are not, this is not parallel structure. I don't know what you're doing. Mm. This is when 48 lip syncs for his life, because this is when the pre-recorded version of Dry Bones comes on. Which Eric Minival said that, that, that McGowan was, I mean, for a guy who wrote, you know, put all these specific song titles, but then said, or, or whatever, in the stage direction of his script, he directed Minival to get every recording of this song that he could possibly get his, his hands on, selected this one for reasons of his own. But uh, apparently he, he demanded that the music editor acquire dozens of recordings of this spiritual. I mean, this is a fun part of the episode because everybody gets up, everybody starts to move it, move it. They like to move it, move it. The president starts. I think the president seems to be doing it um, grudgingly, right? He seems to almost be like yeah. resisting coming into it. There's a once more with feeling vibe yeah. to this. Um, and then the president declares the youth guilty, and the charge is read. <laughs> this is a phone protocol all over again, Chris. The charge is read. The laws that he broke. By the member of the assembly representing anarchists. Okay, what? That's this. 
this is voting yeah. against your own interests. Yeah. This is this yeah. is what's the matter with Kansas. This is this guy, and you can tell from his piping tenor that this is the beardy burly guy from a chain. Yeah, mind. and I I didn't spot him. I mean, I I saw that in um, you know reading about this episode that Michael yeah. Miller. I think it was, was, was back, but, uh, yeah, I, I, I'm ashamed to say I, I didn't pick him out piping tenor or, or no piping tenor. Believe me. Piping Believe fiber. Me. Believe me. No. Um, inadequate. Inadequate. Uh, he is charged with questioning authority, speaking, addressing uh, weirdly. And that much, that's a fair cop. I'll give him, you gotta uh, give them just that. That's, that's fair. And his refusal to acknowledge his number, um, which, you know, why would an anarchist care about that? Like, this is obviously... Okay, so it's irony, right? It's, yeah. it's irony that an yeah, anarchist yeah. would be so confused about yada, yada, yada. But it still, it still bugs me. They then remove 48 for picking him off the ground. But he keeps his legs crossed as they move him. He's got some core strength there. The yep. youth has solid mm-hmm. core strength. It's a, I mean, that's a clear passive resistance thing, right? That's that's like you're, oh, you're yeah. being pulled out of a sit-in or, or a demonstration yeah. by cops. or yeah. Oh, that's, I didn't recognize that cultural reference. Thank you. Uh, so we get a beardless number two awakens. He's got a different color hair, right? He has reddish hair here. Am I right in that? Or yeah. at lighter brown? Yeah. He gets out of his barber chair um, <laughs> and starts laughing. And, and we're getting, declares. yeah, we're, we're hearing him laugh without seeing him laugh. There's laughter of him uh, on the screen. And it's yeah. the evil diabolical laughter. Um, remember that because that's going to come back later. And he declares, I feel, I feel a new man. And uh, there's some more slash work right there. Uh-huh. I, would, I, would read, uh-huh. I would read about number two feelings in New Men. Uh-huh. He greets Six. He finds that the butler will not follow him. He gets a pang of real melancholy that he shakes off by addressing my, my lords, ladies and gentlemen. A most extraordinary thing happened to me on my way. Yeah. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, what's wrong with that, Chris? You mean what's wrong specifically with that salutation? Because there's there's a lot of weirdness happening. I can't see under those robes, but there don't seem to be any women among anywhere. So he's telling us something then. They're robed, they're sitting down, that you, you couldn't tell. It just certainly feels like everything about this feels like a sausage fest. So I, I, it's like there are no speaking parts for women in the last, what, how many episodes? Like three? He says, he makes a speech to the assembly saying that he has wielded power in the past. Governments have been swayed, policies defined, and revolutions nipped in the bud at word from me in the right place and at a propitious time. At a propitious time. It's how I learned the word propitious. I remember. It's, yeah. it's this very thing. I actually learned that word in Hal Ackerman's screenwriting class, Glenn. There you go. At the end of saying, at a propitious time, he gives this awesome, tiny, little aw shucks head bob that I just want to take behind the bicycle sheds and, and make out with. It's just, I love it so much. That little... Yeah, I don't, I don't think the clip is going to capture yes. that. We get his origin story here. He, too, was kidnapped and taken to the village. He resisted for too short a time. Uh, he wants to know how he was killed. Was it the drink? Uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's clearly, it was clearly the drink, dude. I mean, like, what, uh, what, what else could it have been? It was probably the glass. Ah, the poison was in the glass. The poison was in the glass. As uh, Ma, the mags. Uh, uh, yeah. Yeah, from the the wet gang in Justified. What was the name of the gang? Come on. The, 
Apple Dumpling Gang. The Apple Dumpling <laughs> Gang, yes. The oh, come on, great, great actor. Margot Martin, right? Margot Martindale. Yeah. Yes, she's the head of that family of crooks. I think that's the finale of season two, Justified. I think so, yeah. Six wants to know if number two has ever met number one um, face-to-face. And at this, number two laughs with such incredulousness at the very suggestion that uh, uh, Mr. Cox's fan theory... (laughs) Gains a little weight, right? Yeah. Fan theory that it, the the number one is the rocket, right? That's, I mean, that's, it's got an eye. It's got an eye. Um, number one says something. Boop, 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 boop. <laughs> and number two asks, "Shall I give him a stare? Shall I get my Paddington on? Shall I give him a hard <laughs> stare?" He is warned that to look directly into the eye of number one will kill him. But not only does he do it. Uh, that act of just staring the number one lens in the eye causes uh, number one uh, to smoke and shudder. W H Y. I mean, it's it's that same. It's that he, same. Yeah, he's gonna. He, he's kirking it. He's, he's, he's kirking ha- it. He's half kirking it anyway. He's half kirking it. Right. He does do more than what going off half kirked. He's going off half kirked. Excellent. He's he does spit in its eye, which is I think even Kirk wouldn't do because. I think in the future they have better flaws about um, <laughs> they, yeah. know, they know how viruses get spread. Yes. This causes him to be held in a place of detention uh, until Six's inauguration, which is a very interesting word. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Now, we haven't t- talked about too much about what McGowan is playing here as he sits in that throne and doesn't so much approve or disapprove. He notes things. Uh-huh. Um he is playing throughout all this chaos, all this symbolist riot and people singing dem bones uh, or dry bones. He is playing satisfaction, right? He is playing, yeah. I, would, I would even go farther and say smug satisfaction. The notion that all of this he's seeing is deserved because he has earned it. He is entitled to it. Do you disagree? No, I fully agree. And his, the, the way that his, his amazement has completely disappeared yeah, is is interesting. I mean, is it just power corrupts? Authority just instantly makes you accepting of of all the the stuff that when you are powerless uh, uh-huh. that that you recognize as um, alarming for any reason, whether because it's cruel and and violent or or whether just just because it's inexplicable as the proceedings here are. He doesn't seem very curious about what that rocket is. That's clearly communicating. <laughs> <laughs> with the president through boops yeah you know he his anger has vanished as has his curiosity mm-hmm. i mean he seems kind of hypnotized in a way that he's... he that he hasn't before i mean when we're when we've seen him explicitly under the influence of drugs and or you know electronic coercion before mm-hmm. he's he's never doing this he's he's never just regarding everything with this almost like petific like ah yes this is this is only meat and fitting. Right. And I, I deserve this. I deserve to be yes. looking down on all of this from my throne. Exactly. There is a credulousness which would argue that the village has already won, right? That because they've gotten him to believe... Like, this is a version of free-for-all that is taken to the nth degree, right? Just as they, they've done, they've interrogated him in various ways leading up to uh, Once Upon a Time. This is just take that... Take, we're going to give you complete control of the village, but of course... We will see that in small and large ways, the president is still in control. Yeah. Though. 
Well, and, and I mean this also when we, we see how this episode ultimately resolves itself. The next day, number six could be back at the job that he resigned from. Yep. You know, he's back in his house. He's back in his car. He's had his moment, year, whatever, of, yep. uh, of agitation, of rebellion, indulged, and perhaps corrected. Mm-hmm. And he could be back in the office the next day. Chris, it's a good explanation as any as any we're going to get and, and the none that we're going to get. So as number two is led away, he makes fun of his security guards by like by pretending to walk with very much seriousness. And he just seems to have taken a whole load off. When we depart, when, we, when he leaves the screen, he is laughing. But it's not the laughter that we met him doing. Uh, it's not this kind of, you know, diabolical laughter. It is, it is a laughter of just joy and relief. Uh, he is strapped to a piston. He looks up at us, breaks the wall again, and says, be seeing you. Mm. And, oh, God, oh, Lee McKern. I'm, I'm going to start watching Rapal the Bailey just because of this, because I love this guy so much. I hope McKern squeezed Everyman Productions for this. When they decided a year later that they wanted him back, I, I hope he made them After a breakdown? Are you kidding me? Yeah, absolutely. Crazy money. Yeah, yeah. I, I hope yeah. he did. He earned it. On a view screen, we see Six's London apartment. There's K-A-R, 120C. Uh... And then we, yeah. the president gives Magoon six this did not total... like that the uh, the like the name of the realtor on the sign is the name of the production designer or some some okay. little in joke like that that no one would spot or care about and the crew's no. just having a little fun and McGowan did not appreciate it. No, of course not. Because he uh, he hates checks. fun. Yeah. Yes, he hates fun. So the president proceeds to give six this complete tongue bath. A revolutionary of different caliber. That, that Six should see through, but Six's revolt is different. He is pure. He has, he has <laughs> revolted, resisted, fought, mm-hmm. held fast, maintained. Held fast, maintained, destroyed resistance, overcome coercion. So he has both resisted and destroyed resistance. So that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's he's, a hat he's trick the, almost. He's uh, the fully integrated man. Overcome coercion and the, earn the right to be the right person. to be person. Someone or individual. Uh, why would you? Why would you hit, hit the thesaurus that time? It doesn't. I don't understand that language. But maybe it's evocative of something. Maybe it's a direct reference to something. But person, someone, or individual. All that remains, and there's a real unctuous, smarmy, toadying tone here. He says, "Is recognition." All that remains is recognition of a man. A man of... Say it with me, Chris. Steel. Yes. A man magnificently equipped to lead us. They are laying it on super, super thick. Sure, just throwing out how magnificently equipped Six is. And Six is just eating it up. Nom, 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 nom. Like, yes, this is this is me. Yes, but are they? Are, are we talking about Superman or are we talking about Stalin? You know, that's... Uh, yeah. Both readings are there. Both readings are there. And, of course, the Stalin reading is much more sinister yeah. <laughs> maybe more it kind of goes to what McGowan was going for he is offered he can lead us or go you get the key to your house a million in traveler's checks a valid passport valid for anywhere which uh-huh. that must be this uh-huh. would argue for the global you know yep. the global reach of the all countries mm-hmm. and petty cash which seems to all be in coins so I don't when was the last time you used traveler's checks by the way when oh boy um boy I think as a as a uh, toe-headed youth backpacking through Europe, I think is the last yeah. time I had traveler's checks or I had to wear that traveler's checks. God, I think I maybe used them once. 
The president is all, look, guy, you're aces, you're the best around, nothing's ever going to keep you down, you are the greatest, you are the greatest is the thing that is actually said to him. You are the greatest. Take the stand, address us. Should I? You must. You are the greatest. Make a statement, a true statement which could only be yours, but for us. Six responds to this by constantly asking W-H-Y, why? Yes, yes, this is Fresh Air. I'm Terry Gross. Until he finally says, I see, to which the president says, you do, you see all. Which, I mean, why is he, like, this is clearly, clearly doopy, dude. Yep. I want to read to you uh, something that Wanda Ventham, Mama Cumberbatch, as we failed to note before, says in Don't Knock Yourself Out. Sorry, not one to vent them. It was Sheila Allen. It was number 14 from from A, B, and C, who on uh, McGowan's acting style said many years later, he had that ability to really look at you, which not everybody has. When he looked Mm -hmm. at you, he properly looked. He didn't just take your face in. Mm, Take your face in. That's a little gross. Also, I was uh, indulging another another tangent here, but I, I said on our mailbag episode that I'd never seen any of the earliest episodes of The Avengers with Ian Hendry as Patrick McNee's partner. Um, so I still don't know anything about Ian Hendry except that Wanda Ventham, again, Mama Cumberbatch, likened McGowan to him. She said that he had an acting style comparable to McGowan's. Well, now I got to see it because yeah, yeah. that's that is that is a tiny little that first season of the Avengers is very difficult to to get now. It is not as readily available as the later seasons, so we'll mm. we'll have to work on that. Yeah, we will. So Sixta says he doesn't know if he wants to lead or leave. That is an admission of mm, unsurety, I guess, or indecision right. that that this character has never experienced. He takes the stand to address the assembly. There is, as he walks, some very weird upbeat music which will return at the end of the episode. And he takes up the key, the passport, the petty cash, uh, like a little Dungeons and Dragons dice bag filled with uh, coins. Um, he begins to speak. I. And again. I like what McGowan is delivering here because he's delivering I, I belong here. This yeah. is this was meant for me. I feel I feel that despite the and the assembly members overpower him with either and I want to hear your take on this. Uh-huh. Either their approval, just blindly agreeing to everything he says, I A Y E, I I I, or I, the letter yeah. I, is in the individual. They have become newly enraptured yeah. with this notion of an individual, so they can just keep saying I, 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 which do it. Well, both in AYE, you have half the letters you need to spell team. And in I, <laughs> you have zero. Of the, no, I, I absolutely think it is I, singular. I think it is I, Claudius. Mm-hmm. I, I, the jury. Me, myself, and I. Mm-hmm. I, Tanya. Yeah. I, I, Tanya, I, uh, my, my confirmation name, Isidore, by the way, Glenn. Here's, here's a little uh, okay. of wow. my Catholicism deep cut coming for you. Uh, patron saint of agriculture, I think? Sure. Uh, Isidore. Is, okay, this is, this is why you're all, everything about you is fallow. Agricultural, yes. And uh, I think I chose it because I was very into 
the uh, Denny O'Neill 80s version of the Question comic sure. book at that time. Denny O'Neill and Dennis Cowan. Mm-hmm. Um, Steve Ditko created character, of course. Ditko, who seems like a very... The reason yeah. I chose the Spider-Man push it earlier is, is Ditko and McGowan seem to be of similar yep. mind, I think. Prof Roder, who is like the Zen professor who's like Vic Sage's Yoda in that series. I think we find out eventually that his first name is Izzy. So that year I was really hardcore into the question. So when I found out there was a St. Isidore, okay, that was me. I like it that it has certain vague Middle Earth connotations. Like I'm sure there's an Isidore somewhere, but also uh, Isidore Duncan. So you've got a little <laughs> bit, uh, you've got the Alpha and Omega. Yeah, good for you. Yes. All right, let me offer an actual substantive uh, observation here. Magoon is funny in this scene for a guy who so frequently seems like he has a gigantic stick up his ass. He's really funny in this scene when he's hitting the gavel and his face is showing us. He's thinking, like, wait, what's wrong with this silly gavel? It doesn't work. They're they're still drowning me out. Uh, I enjoyed his, his reactions here. So, of course, he tries to have his voice rise above the the fray. Somewhere online, I haven't found it, but there's somebody actually does lip reading and figures out what he actually says, and it's something completely anodyne and, you know, nothing, nothing, you will not find any meaning. So I think a meaning that we can pull from this is that society always wins, right? Civilization always trumps the individual, even when they assume, which is kind of the same, you know, the the very same message of Mm -hmm. uh, free-for-all, but just it's here presented with better art design, I suppose. The president leads him to meet number one. They go over a whole neck to the piston. Uh, I like how the president just kind of stops the machine gun seesaw just with a hand. He gets lowered into the ground. He goes down a hallway where there are four guards Uh toward a very familiar-looking spiral staircase in which both 48 and 2 are encased in tubes designated Orbit 48 and Orbit 2. What do you make of (laughs) that? I... Nothing for that. It's like, are they going to be shot into space independently this, of the rocket? This is what I'm thinking. This is what I'm thinking. Yeah, like they're going to be released. cannonball kind of yes. uh, circus yep. trick. <laughs> this is my fucking. I think once the rocket leaves, they were going to be released into space, and they'd be in orbit two and in orbit forty eight. Of course, I'm trying to make this all fit, yeah. all make logical sense, and I am just not. Uh-huh. So there's a bunch of robed figures who are working on something. He climbs the spiral steps to a room filled with globes of various shapes and sizes. Well, just shapes. No, sizes. Just various sizes. Yeah. I mean, and the I'm globes. I'm trying the only to one think shape. of when the... Oh, my God. This is this is bad. Uh, the the Apollo 1 fire disaster. When That was before this. I think mm-hmm. we're still more than a year off of the moon landing when this airs. Mm-hmm. But um, I think the, uh, the Apollo 1 fire had happened like a year mm-hmm. prior to this, which huge setback. Uh, yeah. You know, really seem to put a crimp in the United States, but I mean, England were there are allies, right? Mm-hmm. There, uh, I I wonder if that that figures into here somehow. After after President Kennedy had committed very publicly to landing people on the moon, returning them safely within a decade, with you know three or four years left on the clock, all three astronauts burn up on the launch pad. Okay, so he comes up with a <laughs> up against a robed figure with a giant one on his robe, who attempts to hand him a crystal ball. Sure. And then uh, we get a shot of him. It's the, uh, it's the it's the money shot. It's the I will not be pushed, filed, briefed. And then the I of I will not be pulled becomes the I, 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 uh-huh. I. Increases in pitch and volume. Six drops and shatters the crystal ball. Reaches. After the triple the, slam. After triple the triple face slam. slam. 
Uh, just reaches for the black and white cookie mask, revealing a jabbering chimpanzee face mask, which is Magoon's comment on Darwinian evolution. What, what's going on there? Throw, throw out your best theory. What's, what's we think going on there? I, it's the beast within us all, right, Chris? I, That's what it is. Yes, but what Man's I see, animal nature. I, I, I'm always immediately overtaken when I watch the sequence by the expression on six or sir's face after mm-hmm. he he pulls off the ape mask sees himself he gives this look that he gives at no other point during the series and i cannot characterize it okay if you're talking about when he kind of rips off the black and white mask sees the chimpanzee mask then he tilts his head and has a very what i think is a knowing look saying i know that's not who you really are i think that's i know there's okay. more to He's a, all right i don't i don't right. buy your <laughs> yeah I'm not convinced by your I'm Halloween store rubber ape mask. Your, your party city chimpanzee mask. And then he rips it off. It's Magoon's face in a kind of feral, you know, cackling, laughing. Then they cackle at each other for a while. And then uh, Six chases one right. around the tower. We talked at, in our very earliest conversations about this show, about our, our first youthful impressions of it, and the reason it always seemed... Besides Rover, obviously, somewhat sinister to me, I think is because that cackling on the soundtrack, which I also, I think that, that we also get some of that towards the end of Revolution 9 on the, on the White Album. And uh, like my whole perception of uh, late 60s British psychedelia, mad cackling was, uh, was a big part of that sensory yeah. package. So uh, I no, think yeah. there's something, I think somehow I just, just remembered, get that cackling on the soundtrack and that just burrows into me freaks me out beyond the scope of just this one episode and just the few seconds that we hear it for oh i agree i get that it is it is deliberately unsettling we have to get some props here to the editor because they are chasing each other around this tower it is a tiny tiny room somehow number one can can grab a ladder and climb up the ladder without number six being right the fuck behind him and being able to pull him down and the way they do that, I watch it again, is there's a, some shots of just them ra- racing around, racing around, and then some shots of just you can't tell what mm-hmm. you're looking at. It's, it's so disorienting that yeah. we can get a really tight shot of from above of one reaching for the ladder and climbing up it, and we don't see six anywhere in the background mm-hmm. he, where he should be just racing, yeah. like, <laughs> should be within two feet of him. Yeah. So, yes, that is all the disorienting effect brought from the editing because it makes no logical sense. On the commentary track, Ackland, Noreen Ackland, she does say that, that they sh- they brought in another editor to share the work on this episode, which makes sense. I mean, like as I said, this was on TV six weeks after it finished shooting, so lightning mm. fast. Yeah. She tells a story about Magoon coming into her, her little editing room and she's doing this on a you know, on a moviola and looking oh, yeah. over her shoulder and, and without giving any other instructions saying run it back, run it forward, run it back, run it forward, run it back, run it forward. And she she says that after an hour of this she was in tears. She asked him what he was looking for and he said he didn't know. Oh man. <laughs> Again. The more we find out, the more it's like, Yeah, no, yep, yeah. Sure. Um <laughs> So number one gets to the top of the hatch, closes the hatch on number six after giving him a look, a shaking of his head as if to say, you'll never get up here, you know, where I am up in this, what's it called? The cockpit? What is that called? The top of the rocket thing. The nose? The What's it called? Control pod. Whatever. Command module. 
command mo- that's it that's what i'm looking for you'll never get up here mm-hmm. to the command module you will never figure or you'll never figure out mm-hmm. what the hell the show's about or words to that effect just one of those things back at the assembly the eye of number one closes the president is sitting on the throne right mm-hmm. like this yeah, is yeah. this is this little... is weak usurper he looks worried number six descends the stairs with a fire extinguisher is this the first time we've defeated evil through the power of puffing at them really hard i think there's been some other fire extinguisher in the show uh yeah, is there a fire so. maybe in the general he might use a fire yeah, extinguisher maybe. as a weapon in the general i don't remember yes. specifically but that also seems like um I, I mean i guess the fire extinguisher is the weapon that was available to him in that moment before he could mm-hmm. he could disarm one of the soldiers in their pjs unless you're using it to grab a gun from someone and then start mowing them down it's a, a non-lethal weapon, right? I mean, it could have allusions to demonstrations being dispersed with fire hoses and, and things sure. in this time. And that reading goes away once he picks up a Tommy gun. <laughs> lots, <laughs> lots of things go away once he yeah. starts mowing down people. Um, it could represent the fog of war, huh? How about yeah, that? That's a yes. thing it could represent. The flame retardant of war. <laughs> the the toxic dry the asbestos yes. of war. Right. Um, so they dress up in the robes and they call the military police in and overpower them. And then number six climbs. Uh, I should say that he frees number 48 and number two and the butler. And they're all in on it, right? So now they're a team. And Muscat gives six this great look, this great side eye. Like, look, they're right over there before six. Magoon or or Frank Mayer more likely jumps into the fray. Muscat gives him this look like, I'll back you up. Fantastic Four. And they uh, he puts the tower, which is actually a rocket, into a countdown. This causes the assembly to freak the fuck out, shouting out variations of contact control, emergency control, contact control, contact. Lots back, yep. back and forth. Control! Confirm contact priority! As if that means anything. We sneak up, back up to the assembly cavern. A police guy, I think this is important, a police guy starts firing on them first. So they fire back. I think that's probably dictated by the network or something yeah. because it's otherwise it is a bloodless bloodbath of yeah. just mowing people down while the ironic strains of All You Need Is Love play. Um, yeah, this is the deflating climax of so many Bond films. But yes, again, I, I mean, I think particularly You Only Live Twice, you know, yeah. which is to the point that like the final half hour of that movie is just laughable <laughs> like you can't see it without seeing dr evil and all that stuff well sure yeah. but i mean speaking of laughable we see here for the full in full how ineffective that seesaw machine gun cannon is because yeah. he has to kind of like oh you're right underneath me so i have to <laughs> totally <laughs> twist the machine so yes it, it, and it doesn't make any sense we Unless it's, uh, you know, the, the authorities are just not properly configured to contain the rebellion happening just See? beneath their noses, Glenn. This is I knew really I reaching. You. Uh, no, I think, I think that's it. I think that's in there. Yeah. In no, there. I mean, I, I have incredible grip strength among individual fingers because when I am grasping at straws, that is what is required. <laughs> we do get a couple fun shots of Alexis Counter's hippie. With a machine gun. Hippie with a machine gun. Uh, I'm sorry. It's it's a fun image. Now, it's not, yes. you know, it is a British hippie. It's not an American uh-huh. hippie. I think it'd be even funnier if it was a dude with long hair and tie-dye and <laughs> beard mowing folk down. But it'd be funny to an American, but... I mean, we're, we're good liberals, Glenn, but we, we mm-hmm. both recoil from hippies, right? We, yeah, we fear no, them, sure. we shun them, we abjure Absolutely. them. Absolutely. Uh, of course. Yeah. Of course. <laughs> um, 
we see shots of people evacuating, including from the cavern room, people uh, we didn't see before. Like, there's these dudes in what the, the divers? wetsuits. Like the, the yeah. scuba divers. <laughs> on bikes. Yep. Divers on bikes. Um, yeah. The, this is indistinguishable from the 67 Casino Royale at this point, yeah. right? It is, it yeah, is yeah. that kind of visual absurdism. Yep. There is a bunch of helicopters, which were... I thought there Conveniently was just hidden. one. I thought there was just <laughs> no. one. I mean, it makes sense that they would have some kind of, it makes sense in gigantic air quotes, that there would be a fleet of helicopters concealed, you know, in yeah, these, uh, this who is, knows how, this is... how extensive this underground network of, of caves and bunkers is. But um, yeah, they made this whole thing about there just being the, like the one helicopter that comes once a day or whatever. Yeah, I mean, this is clearly, you know, they're not just hidden under a bush, right? They are, this is clearly some <laughs> X-Jet, the, the, uh, the, Basketball yes. court opens. Yeah. The fountain opens. <laughs> the the the, the yep. old west set opens, uh-huh. and uh, they just take there. It is underneath. Yes, there. the lifeguard blows the whistle. Everybody gets out of the pool. Stone <laughs> boat they, opens. Yes. Yep. <laughs> yep. Oh man, I wish I wish the budget had permitted the the stone I boat know, to right? take flight. Right, man. If the, oh, the stone yes. boat like turned into the stone helicarrier or something, yes. uh, it becomes chitty chitty bang bang. Yeah. Just you know, could have happened. Uh, our band of brothers get to the trailer with the detachable um, waste uh, disposal unit, and uh, they leave through a tunnel. It moves. It moves. Detachable. Steel. Steel. The rocket launches. <laughs> we get a shot of rover melting like a cake left out in the rain. I, while Carmen Miranda sings, I, 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 I like you very I much like again. Very there much. it is. Yeah, yeah, Comes yeah. back three times. Yep. Three little threes. I, mean, I, I, she I, is clearly I, singing A-Y-E like you very much. <laughs> that's um, true. We get this aerial shot of the village uh, abandoned, but uh, it's after the rocket is launched. And the village looks great, like untouched. <laughs> like the, all this exa- all this fire, <laughs> like there's this nothing, gonna, there's no trace. clear out the weekenders, the, the fucking tourists, Glenn. It's, yeah, you'd think. Yeah, nobody's going to be like standing on the left on an escalator in Port Mirian after that's certainly true. we've uh, done the necessary winnowing is it the green dome that took off no the green dome is still there it's just just no a rocket. we see the rocket coming up behind the green uh, dome okay. and that's that's a that is a good looking shot and i think that was a a real missile launch that's clearly composited in behind the the green dome but it looks good that is a good visual effect shot so he launches the rocket chris explain this to me he launches the rocket you explain you can choose to explain this to me on a plot level or on a symbolist level because i do not get either one he launches the <laughs> rocket to destroy the village Nope, didn't work. Village is still there. Mm -hmm. Village is still great. He launches the rocket because he knows that number one is up at the command module, and he just wants to launch him into fucking space. Right. Nope, that doesn't that doesn't really check out because like number one could have escaped. We don't know where number Mm -hmm. one is. I think he's just trying to take number one and blow him out of the goddamn airlock. Maybe he's just trying to do that. Why? What does it represent symbolically that he? Again, it's not about destroying the village. It's about like yeah, so scaring people away from the assembly room, but the village is. And maybe that's the point because the village goes yeah. on and the whole thing with the number and blah, blah, blah. The village is right. eternal and yada, 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 yada. Prison for, prison for individuals. I am going to say, like like tying this in with the symbol of the, the penny-farthing bicycle, which he mm. always said was, was his representation of technology proceeding too quickly. I think it's how, like, there there is no de-escalation. It's, the scun cannot be uncocked. 
you build a, a rocket or a missile, it's going to get launched. It cannot be created and then not used. That's my reading. Chekhov's command module. Yes. yes. Okay. The truck they're on turns out to be on the A20 motorway, 27 miles, kilometers, 27-somethings, outside of London. <laughs> they are dancing to dry bones. I'm not sure if they're dancing to dry bones in the truck and then the car that comes alongside is also tuned to the same radio station or if they <laughs> it's can it's hear the, the global simulcast that was playing <laughs> of, uh, of an old spiritual everyone uh, that's yeah. right they are having a great british old time up there they are they are making their tea and dancing yeah. along with their tea tray. they are smoking cigars <laughs> they are dancing they're or as, drinking as, tea and smoking big cigars they are like as in close. wholesome prison <laughs> they are as close to dancing as British men can can get, I think. Um, oh, Kenner can probably dance. Yeah, Kenner can do it. Uh, the truck stops, number 48 gets out, and he tries hitching either way. The symbolism there is just low-hanging fruit. Uh, yeah. By the time they get into London, they get stopped by a cop just outside the House of Parliament, and number two walks right in. It was a different time. Yeah. Um, the butler is standing there looking like a lost puppy at, at a far distance from uh -huh. the prisoner, from number six. The butler gets kind of checked out, cruised by a bobby. Who... The long shot of Six with the bobby speaking to him and gesturing broadly. What do you yeah. What do you make of that? I <laughs> like, there's think... this village. It's this big. <laughs> <laughs> I think he is miming the story of the village, ending with a rocket because that's he does point up in the air okay. and the rocket went away and sure, then he sure. points okay. into it's like when C3PO is is telling the the little baby e Ewoks the uh... <laughs> yes that's exactly it um he points into the houses of parliament as if to say oh by the way and if you, you can check with that guy check check with that uh uh, -huh. I'm, uh I'm with mustachioed a who just went the into the admirable admirable hip flexion yes. uh, check my yes. story with that gentleman they hop in a city bus, and while they're going back to Six's flat, we get this, what we talked about before, this glamour shot of Alexis Kenner with, you know, a giant boldface font just stretching across the screen, yep. hitchhiking in the middle of the damn road like an asshole. He is in the standing in the middle of the road uh -huh. as he hitchhikes. McCurran eventually gets that same kind of treatment, but he's it's a different day now, and he's dressed up in a new suit as he yeah. walks jauntily into the house yeah, parliament. He, he's dressed like Steed. He's got his, his yep. bowler. He's got his mm -hmm. vest. It's a whole thing. And a boutonniere. Six gets into car, K-A-R, I think what see, and drives off. The What's butler the approaches number? Six's door. What's the engine number? The door approaches automatically. It's got the same sound. And there you have it. Chris. Well, hang on. We we saw the overhead shot of him driving around with the title prisoner. Prisoner, just prisoner. He's he's gone from the prisoner to prisoner, just like yeah. the Batman became Batman and the Joker became Joker. Boy, Kenny G, uh, Ken Griffiths should have a stern word with his agent because he doesn't get his own credit here at the end the way that uh, I don't. No, I don't think so. Cantor and McKern and. Prisoner no, I, I'm. Too. I was looking for it because as soon as I saw the Alexis Counter ones, he seems to deserve it just as much, right? It's just as prominent a role, and he too is returning from a previous episode. Yeah, right. And I always like this. I always like a curtain call at the end of an ensemble type movie, like at the end of Avengers Endgame. I, I, I wouldn't call this an ensemble. I would. Th I think no, that no, Leo McKern bullied yeah. it to being an ensemble because Leo McKern is Leo from a fucking Kern. Hmm. But yeah. 
I mean, we, I, what, what's it mean, Chris? So, I mean, like, the pat answers are he never escapes the village because uh, the individual is always going to be trumped by society, by civilization, by the status quo, which is a fucking depressing ass. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, and I mean, I, I, I never really came away with this from this with uh, such a adamant notion of where it goes. But I, on this most recent viewing, like I said, I, I think he's broken. I think he's just back at his job, back to work, back uh, yeah. perhaps with a promotion. He's got a butler now. You know, yep. he's probably in a position of greater influence from whatever job he resigned from on moral grounds. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I prefer not to try to puzzle out any kind of logical plot based thing. I like to think of it as it reached its peak with Once Upon a Time when allegory and plot come together. And then we're just all having a uh, an everyman play like a like a, yeah. a moral yeah. A moral morality play, basically, where, you know, the individual comes up against society, three different forms of revolt. It's very medieval. It's very... um, And I'm content to let it be that, even if it doesn't satisfy much of anything. We've talked so much about how this is a deflation and an um, abdication and a a cop-out and I'm not sure. I mean, I I don't know that I really want him to storm into George Markstein's office or whoever and Markstein be like, well, you got us. After World no. War II, we decided that uh, we needed to create a, a, yeah, like that, that no, clear but expository climax. Yeah, if, How could that possibly be satisfying? If, a, if adult, um, insightful um, critic Chris Klimek were to encounter this series fresh, even a contemporary version of this series, let's say, yeah. let's say that that thing can happen. And it was this abstruse at the end. If it, and it kind of pulled the football away in the interest of widening out, which is what this does. Yeah. In the interest of widening out to be, I'm not going to tell you uh-huh. stories about spies because I don't care about spies. I'm going to tell a story about the individual. And in the process of doing it, I'm going to have to cut a lot of corners and some things won't line up. Um, but my interest here, the swing I'm making is a big one. And I want to talk about the role of individuality against the state or society, mm-hmm. whatever. Would you still say that? Would you still say, yeah, I, I, I kind of like that it took that turn, or would you be hungering for something more concrete? I think it would take me time to accept that this is the the ending. This is the only ending we're going to get. Mm-hmm. Um, in the same way that when The Sopranos concluded in 2007, I was initially just as frustrated and uh, perturbed as everyone else, and over time, that has come to seem to me a brilliant conclusion. All right, let's, let's go here, then. Let's go here to Lost. Tell me about Lost. Tell me about the Lost. End. Well, we're going to have Jen Chaney on pretty soon. Jen Chaney mm-hmm. from Vulture, who is a, mm-hmm. a big uh, Lost fan and a, a Damon Lindelof specialist uh, who's written about him extensively. I don't completely remember what happens in the Lost finale, but Jen published, I think, last year, which I guess would have been the 10-year anniversary of Lost mm-hmm. wrapping up. She published a, a big oral history of the Lost conclusion. So she's going to be our, our Lindelof expert to come and talk to us about mm-hmm. denouements that pay off or don't and fan expectation and the way that the audience and their desires and the, the creator's objectives can differ or intersect. Obviously, I'm, I'm vamping. I am looking forward to that episode very much. I don't know that I would have faith to, to give it the benefit of the doubt immediately. I mean, if you have to file a piece making a judgment, you know, you're watching a screener and your review has to go up. At uh, yeah. I guess it would be like eight twenty nine p.m. <laughs> based mm-hmm. on when this thing originally aired. I mean, I probably would have 
would have whiffed it, I probably would would have written in a state of, of befuddlement and not a little anger and frustration and would likely have been embarrassed by that piece <laughs> soon I mean, after. We've talked about how great endings have to seem uh, surprising yet inevitable. I'd say... Uh, this seems surprising. We're, we're, we're halfway there. Yeah. <laughs> 50%. What kind of... Is that a good batting average? No, right? Or that's a great batting average, actually, right? Uh, uh, yes. It'd be a failing grade in school. It would... Mm. Uh, yeah. A, a batting average of 500 would be incredible Hall of Fame. So these these are different things, Glenn. <laughs> these are different things. Okay. I should... I should uh, noted. Even I, I know this. Noted. Yeah. So I'll save my, my lost thoughts for that for that episode, which I'm looking forward to. But yeah, I do feel like as much as I agree that a prosaic hidebound answer to all these questions would inevitably disappoint because that's and, and so doing this is a way to kind of say, yeah, you know what? I'm not playing that game. I'm not I'm not going to buy into the fact that the, the revelation of a mystery, the explanation of a mystery is inherently disappointing because it is. So I see what he's going for. I do, and I do admire the balls of it, but I just think the execution, just the fact that we don't get any seeds planted that he's going to, well, we got plenty of seeds planted that he's going to not be concerned about, you know, prosaic plot details. Yeah. Well, I he mean, just, I, I, again, I'm, I'm going to put this on McGowan just not knowing how to collaborate well, burning out a lot of people, alienating a lot of people, firing too many directors, maybe maybe uh, as Alex Cox suggested, maybe choosing directors who were too timid, too workmanlike in the first place. His own enthusiasm and energy for the series ebbs and flows visibly as it's going on. That really hurt it. Well, this is where I really want to hear from uh, the listeners about this ending. If God, if you are watching this series for the first time, and yes, I know we kind of spoiled, in our discussions, we kind of spoiled how the turn it takes in this final episode, but if you are coming to this fresh, you've never seen it before, and this is your first experience with it, oh man, I want to hear from you. We want to hear from you, because I want to hear <laughs> how this happened to you. Like, And even if you've seen it many, many times, and you were, if you were a diehard vocal supporter of this ending, saying that this is... I don't know what you're talking about, Glenn. It's both inevitable and surprising. Then make your case. I want to hear it. Uh, And, you know, if you're somewhere, if you're closer to me, which is like, yeah, Hmm. this was a great idea. I understand where he's going for, but I I do think we needed to lay some more track for this left turn to bear out. I want to hear from you, too, because, you know, we're both right. Well, is there anything else? Maybe this was lost for you. I, I don't know. I mean, I did I did watch Lost, but I kind of fell off, and, and there were several interruptions during its run, which made it kind of hard to appreciate the seeds that were being planted for its its conclusion. And I, I have not gone back and looked at that series without all those interruptions again. But was there something that you experienced as it was new that made you wrestle with the conclusion and examine your expectations for it in a similar way? I'll just give this preview of the lost episode we'll do. But basically, I was a nerd. I was all about the island and its mysteries. And as soon as we stopped being on the island to go flashback to somebody's character's thing about how they had a bad time with their daddy or they were like, didn't they just uh, something didn't agree with their sister about something? I was like, I don't care about you people. I want to know <laughs> what's going on with this island. Yeah. So, yes. And so the I found Tell the, me uh, about the polar bear, for fuck's sake. <laughs> exactly. What's the polar bear about? I just, you know, I mean, I. Some great performances, um, but ultimately I felt like I wanted to know. Yeah. I, I wanted to read the wiki. I didn't really want to watch mm. people having bad memories of their childhood. You know what I mean? Yeah. Just making your peace with something that really disappointed you over years is... Um... 
I certainly don't feel the uh, affrontedness that I did as a kid. Yeah. I feel now I have a better sense. I'm older. I understand uh, physical and mental exhaustion a little bit better than I yeah. did as a kid. And I can understand how you're throwing out ideas and you adjust. Uh. You, and I know a little something more about the television schedule and how um, just implacable it is yeah. and how uh, unforgiving it is. And so, yes, I, I'm... <laughs> Able to see it, and there are some things like I, I have, as I have mentioned many times, I have watched that uh, Leo McKern speech so often that I am off book on it because <laughs> it's such a great performance, and it's it's so well delivered. What is deplorable is that I resisted for so short a time. A fine tribute to your method. with the president's speech, even though, yeah. as I think we talked about before, in some sources say that he wrote that himself because McGowan said, I'm too tired, I don't have anything. Yeah, that's in the Robert Fairclough Clough Cloth, the prisoner official companion to the classic mm-hmm. TV series that McGowan outsourced that monologue to mm-hmm. Griffiths. Just Griffith. Griffith. No S, no S. I don't know, maybe he then subcontracted to some additional Griffiths. Maybe maybe there's some other, <laughs> other family members who he... Uh, yeah. Ian Griffith and uh, yep other other Griffiths. You know Keith Richards is apparently Keith Richard and is is credited <laughs> that way. And I think it's Skimmy Shelter, maybe the Maisel's Brothers movie about the Altamont disaster. But uh, and apparently that's his real name. But even even huh. on his memoir, Life, he calls himself Keith Richards. Well, Which I mean, yeah, if you were if gonna... you were going to choose a stage name for yourself, just adding an S is a <laughs> <laughs> kind of a weird way to go. I would have gone with Richard Keith. You know, right. Or the way in the the eighties we we had two actors working Keith David and David Keith. Yeah, it's true. I think Keith David has hung around more than David Keith. I don't know what happened to to David Keith, but but Keith oh, David is in. Him. Is he? Yeah, because uh, Keith David is in the Nice Guys, among mm-hmm. many many other films, mm-hmm. the Immortal mm-hmm. Nice Guys. Yep. All right, we're gonna throw this open to the uh, listeners to kind of tell us what they thought of this uh, final episode. We have plans for the future, which we will talk about the next time we join you. That's going to uh, we, we can retain the title of the show, mm. even as we explore some more McGowan stuff. We got some more McGowan stuff down the pike for a while, but <laughs> yeah. there are plans to continue with a slightly different readjustment of our, as they say in Britain, remit. <laughs> so. I think I'm sure uh, that our, shall we say, deliberations shall not remain, wait, shall remain uninterrupted. I was going to say shall not remain interrupted, which yeah. doesn't make any sense. Well, we do draw your attention to the regrettable bullet. <laughs> That's not a bad title either, Glenn. <laughs> the regrettable bullet, uh, which is uh, a D&D monster. That is like a giant uh, yeah. Hedgehog thing, bullet. What's the bullet that you'd be like? Yeah, that was a good bullet. The one that killed Osama bin Laden, I guess. But uh, yeah, sure. pretty pretty good bullet. Well, we'll stand behind that bullet. And I would but, say, uh, you know, when uh, it comes to when it comes to the bourbon, there's nothing regrettable about that bullet. I like that <laughs> bullet a great deal. I did not regret that bullet. Yes, we are still looking for monsters. Uh, <laughs> Again, I think Mac Weldon is uh, really the one we should be pursuing. But uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll talk to my I'll talk to my uncle about. Getting my my nephew Mac to sign on. Yeah, we could open up our our remit to deal with killing werewolves, Glenn. Um, how's that? Oh, because it's the silver silver bullet. That would be the antimicrobial silver bullet, combining oh. both of our not yet oh, yes. signed sponsors. Antimicrobial. 
Yes, sure. Anti-crimobile. That's what I said. Anti- yeah. It's the anti-crimobile <laughs> bullet. Yes. Uh huh. Well, we all know which which iteration of the anti-crimobile you prefer. Um. Yes, the crimobile comes yes. out of a cave in Malibu. Sure. <laughs> sure. Griffith Park. Yeah. Uh, is it in Griffith Park? Oh I man, so. I would I would have felt compelled to go find the the entrance to the Batcave had I known it was in Griffith Park. I used to run in Griffith Park all the time. I'm not sure if it's Griffith Park. It is certainly walkable from <sighs> writer director of Batman Begins and Chris Nolan. Nolan. Yes, I believe I'm familiar with his work. It's walkable from Chris Nolan's house because he and his director, I think, or his assistant director. David Goyer, maybe, when they were. Yes. Uh, I think I've read this story. Like they were working yes. on the script and for Batman Begins in his garage or something. And, yep. like... and they walked to the entrance from <laughs> his house. For inspiration. Like we want to mm-hmm. make something very much like this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we want to we want to absorb this tone. That's exactly. <laughs> this, uh... <laughs> if we don't nail exactly this tone, we will have failed. That's what they told themselves. <laughs> Whatever that original vision was, uh, I mean, I'm, I was happy with what they came up with, but uh, clearly it traveled some distance from. <laughs> yes. Uh, yes, uh, listeners. For more detail on that anecdote that Glenn Weldon can't quite remember about Batman Begins co-writers Christopher Nolan and David Goyer visiting the old Batcave in Runyon Canyon. See the book, The Cape Crusade, Batman, and the Rise of Nerd Culture by Glenn Weldon. Okay, pal. Let's let the listeners go with the promise that more more is to come. The exact shape and size. More is to, <laughs> to well come. Well come. Yes, exactly. Yes, we'll have more news soon, but episodes we can tell you now to expect in the coming weeks. We're going to get to some of McGowan's other notable film roles, including... Mary Queen of Scots, Escape from Alcatraz, Scanners, and, of course, Braveheart. The most excellent idea, sire. Is it? We've got the Jen Cheney episode about Lost and Damon Lindelof that we told you about. We are going to get to the Prisoner sequel comic book series from the late 80s by Dean Motter and Mark Asquith. And the 2009 reboot with Ian McKellen and Jim Caviezel. We will be covering all of those in the coming weeks. We may have a brief summer vacation, but we will tell you more about that soon. We can say with complete certainty that we shall be seeing you. Be seeing you. Absolute was conceived by Glenn Weldon. The Bones is his, my daddy, and is produced by me, Chris Klemek. Yo, your baby something, my daddy. I wrote our silly theme song, which was then arranged and beautifully performed by my dear friend Casey Aaron Clark on keyboards and vocals and her brother Jonathan Clark on guitar and percussion with Marcus Newstead on bass. Leave us a five-star review on whatever platform you use to hear our podcast with your most out-there prisoner take. We will read your take on a future episode. Write the Citizens Advice Bureau at a degree absolute at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter at not a number pod. Our Instagram handle is a degree absolute. Just to reiterate one more time, we may be taking a brief, brief hiatus to regroup, but we'll be back. Uh, we crave your indulgence for a short while. The uh, transfer of ultimate power requires some tedious ceremony, and perhaps you 
would care to observe the preliminaries from the chair of honor. It's a degree absolute. absolute. I just mentioned to Faust that we, I think we're probably about halfway done, and he said, What? And then he laughed like number two. Yeah. What do you want? Wide engagement or deep engagement? Right. This is this is uh, this is what podcast people say all the time. And save that filthy talk for your your other podcast. <laughs> I wrote uh, a fucking enthusiastic review for us on Apple Podcasts, and the username showed up as CTK and my address. <laughs> Which I, yeah, I know, I know. It's it's embarrassing. It's hilarious. <laughs> it's and I would. <laughs> yep. <laughs> oh my god. Yeah. So uh, so is it still up there. Could you delete it? What's I'm uh, trying. <laughs> I will probably ask to have the comment removed, and they'll just take down the whole podcast. got an enigmatic look on his face and all he said was that my fucking script isn't here (laughs) (laughs) jesus it's all gone because i had to restart my computer (laughs) oh man i thought you were emoting i thought you were getting some of your london training in there Uh right and we are with this week's episode a little a little frighteningly Oh, fuck me. <laughs> ah, I'm getting a, a, a hard disk warning. I just cleared a bunch of shit out of my... <laughs> what the fuck? What the fuck? Oh, my God. All right. All right. I hope, that, I hope that's nothing. I hope that's uh, something I can just ignore. Like a cholesterol test. That's usually the way the computers work, yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, I'm just going to ask it an insoluble question, insoluble for for man or machine, and everything will be fine. Yep. I can turn off, right? We're done? Yep, yep, yep. We're done. We're done. Jesus, we're done.